Welcome to the Enviwa Podcast, a podcast produced by the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research at the University of Iowa. Each month, we discuss environmental research, news, and initiatives that matter to Iowans. I'm your host this month, Jenna Ladd, and today we're speaking with Chris Jones about how soybean plants contribute to nitrate levels in Iowa's waterways. Chris, thanks so much for coming on today. First, we're just going to have you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do here at the University of Iowa. Well, thanks, Jenna. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a research engineer with the IIHR Hydroscience and Engineering, and the main function of my job is to oversee the, the university's network of continuous water quality sensors, which are deployed at about 50 sites around the state of Iowa. And then also with several collaborators at IIHR, the Iowa Geological Survey, and some other places. Uh, I also do research on water quality, contaminant hydrology, and agriculture's role in the environment. Wonderful. Um, Okay, so we're here today talking about this uh, soybean study. Um, In layperson's terms, can you tell us about that study and, and kind of what the basic findings were? So we really do know quite a lot about uh, nitrate and how it moves from the landscape to the stream network. Uh, Nitrate is an easy parameter to sample for and the lab costs to analyze for it are pretty modest. So it's an important environmental uh, indicator. It's important for drinking water uh, uses in Iowa. Of course, we try to reduce the amount of nitrate in, in treated drinking water. And then it's also important for stream health and reducing algae blooms and, and other uh, things that are important to us for water quality, such as biodiversity. There is some complexity in studying nitrate in that it's very difficult to determine uh, what changes are the result of weather conditions and what changes are the result of human actions. So in this study, what we did is we evaluated nitrate levels in the Raccoon River of central Iowa and how those uh, nitrate uh, changes or how these nitrate changes from year to year, uh, what uh, different factors were driving these changes. And so um, we evaluated a number of different factors, uh, both uh, climactic and uh, and agricultural, and and our results showed that uh, many of these changes are being driven by the amount of area that's being planted to soybeans, and also base flow in a river. And so base flow is the amount of flow that's in a river, that exists in a river, in between storm events. So we get a rainstorm, the amount of flow in the river increases temporarily, it declines back to a stable level until the next rainstorm. And so that that level, that stable uh, river discharge in between rainstorms is what we call base flow. There's a lot of evidence that base flow levels in Iowa have increased quite dramatically over the last century or so. And um, what implications does the increase of base flow have? We know that uh, from previous research that in many streams, uh, most of the nitrate uh, load or the amount of uh, the total mass of the nitrate moved by a river occurs during base flow conditions. And so, if base flow increases, it stands to reason that we might also increase nitrate delivery to our streams. Sure, sure. And that kind of brings us to um, what, what were this study's major findings? So, 
one of the major findings was a confirmation of this base flow phenomenon, that, that base flow is indeed helping to drive nitrate levels in the Raccoon River. But the other finding was that uh, soybean area, so the amount of, of area in the watershed planted to soybean, was really driving nitrate uh, levels uh, in the Raccoon River watershed. And so those two things were the major findings of this most recent research. Were you and your colleagues surprised to find that? I wasn't because of some of my previous work uh, that I had done. I was a co-author on a paper from two, in 2009 that showed nitrate concentrations in the Raccoon River increasing from about 1970 until about 2004 as soybean acres displaced oats and alfalfa. And so we knew that uh, as soybean became a more common crop in Iowa, uh, that this um, seemed to correlate with increased nitrate concentrations. I was also a co-author on a paper about a year ago uh, that looked at tributary data in the Raccoon River watershed that seemed to show steady or slightly declining nitrate levels as soybean acres were displaced by corn acres. And so here in recent years, there's been more continuous corn. And so in some years, soybean area has declined because of corn. Because of these two previous papers, I was not surprised by these findings of this most recent study. What implications does this study have, and others like it, like the one that you mentioned, have for policymakers in our state and federally? We agree that refinement of corn production practices, including fertilization, is important for water quality. That said, we feel strongly that more emphasis on soybean uh, practices is merited. And so two things that are especially important in our view. First, how can cover crops best be used to reduce nitrate loss that results from soybean production? And secondly, how can we reduce or eliminate tillage, especially in the fall following the harvest of soybean fields? I think it's also important to emphasize in this soybean discussion that the overall loss in crop diversity over the last 50 years, so therefore the loss of oats, alfalfa, and wheat, and, and some other crops perhaps, has been an important component of our water quality problems. And um, so I think kind of in most communities, most people think that corn is like the, the big culprit, the big bad guy. Why do you think it's gotten so much more attention than soybeans? over the last couple decades? Well, it's intuitive that we would, you know, look at corn first because we use a lot of nitrogen fertilizer on corn. Mm -hmm. We don't apply much nitrogen fertilizer to soybean. So it makes some sense that fertilization of corn would be driving stream nitrate levels. We don't have alfalfa and small grains between corn years. We have soybeans. So I want to emphasize, I'm not, blaming soy, I'm not blaming soybeans per se. Rather, it's the entire corn-soy system and the loss of crop diversity. But in that system, corn is the crop we happen to fertilize the most, and so that's why we tend to think of corn as the, the driver. So you mentioned cover crops and um, increasing crop rotation uh, to smaller grains in order to help improve soil quality. Er, prevent soil erosion and improve water quality. What barriers do you think prevent that from happening? 
Well, the main barrier, in my opinion, is that our entire economy is now aligned with the corn soy system. Seed production, export markets, the corporate food giants, equipment manufacturers, the trucking and rail industries, the lock and dam system on the Mississippi River, and so forth, are all aligned with this corn soybean system. For example, about $3 billion in soybeans are exported from Iowa annually. So we aren't going to just magically see a return to oats or other crops. So there's powerful economic drivers here that, in my mind, are the biggest obstacle. What time frame do you think people should have in mind in seeing better water quality in Iowa? Well, one of the first things people need to realize is that some things in some places have gotten better over the past 50 years mm -hmm. in the context of water quality. As far as nutrient pollution goes, it will get better as fast as we as a society decide it will get better. If we continue to adhere to the current production system, then the multi-decade time frame we hear people talk about is certainly true. If government policy or economic factors cause a return to more crop diversity, then I think you could see some transformation in water quality on a time scale of about five years. So I understand that you used to work at Des Moines Waterworks. Um, do, you, do you think that the recent lawsuit that the Des Moines Waterworks has brought against three Iowa counties um, has done anything positive to bring water quality issues to the forefront? Well, at a bare minimum, it's raised awareness of the problem, and I don't think anybody can argue with that. Um, even people that object to the concept of the lawsuit would have to admit that it, it, that it has raised awareness of the issues here in Iowa, and it has create, created some urgency in our attempts to solve these issues. Uh, I just don't think there's any denying that. So I think in some sense uh, there has been uh, positive consequences. Do you believe that sound scientific research has the ability to influence the general public's opinion and policymakers' actions? Yes, I do, but it, it takes a long, long time to turn the, to turn the Titanic, uh, especially when so much economic activity is dependent upon the status quo. For example, we've known for 50 years that tile drainage is the primary delivery mechanism for stream nitrate. That's basically all of my life. I'm 55 years old. And, and here I am talking to you today. So I think many times the public's expectation of science is that some revolutionary discovery will solve this or that problem, and that isn't the way that it works. These landscape-scale problems, we're talking tens of millions of acres, entire ecosystems essentially, they're really monstrous and expensive problems that defy solution in the absence of fundamental societal changes. After seeing these results, what's the next step in terms of uh, researching nitrate levels? Well, right now I'm working on how continued expansion of the drainage system, which is happening, uh, how that will affect stream nitrate levels in the future. Also, with my colleague Keith Schilling here at the university, we're working on some nutrient budget questions on the watershed scale with some Iowa State researchers. Uh, some other things are how and why nitrate levels change within the stream itself, and along with some questions about stream phosphorus. 
Um, and this research was focused mostly or completely on the Raccoon River. Um, how do you think these results would compare with other waterways throughout the state? Well, I can't say for sure, but my expectation is that it will be consistent with other streams on at least the Des Moines Low Bland Farm, and that's the recently glaciated area in north-central Iowa, and also the area where we have some of the very high nitrate levels. So what have been the reactions of the public so far? Well, honestly, there's been no outpouring of public reaction. Um, I have talked to some other researchers I know, people that are more knowledgeable about crop production than I am. Mm -hmm. And I ask them, do you believe it? And some do and some don't, and that's okay. Um, what do the people say who don't believe it? People that uh, are skeptical um, tend to be looking at some plot-scale research, and they have data that you know might illustrate higher nitrate concentrations uh, in tile water under corn, and so... It's not that they uh, are just uh, ill-informed non-believers. They have data of their own that, <clears throat> that might say something different. And that's the way science works. Uh, rarely do we have unanimous agreement on all these questions. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think one, pe one thing people need to understand about these things is that there are trades or trade-offs everywhere you turn. And that's... Uh, from an ecological, from an economic, and from a cultural standpoint. For, ex for example, a lot of people now have bad feelings about glyphosate herbicide, uh, but the truth is glyphosate probably helped reduce the amount of tillage that we do on the landscape, which is good for water quality. I also have no doubt that these GMO crops have produced some environmental benefits. But these are examples of how we spend so much time nibbling at the edges of these huge issues, mainly because we lack the means or the fortitude to, um, to address the underlying fundamentals. And so I, I think that's important for people to understand as we work on these very large landscape scale issues. Well, Chris, thank you so much. It's been really interesting. Um, we appreciate you coming on in Viowa. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to episode three of Inviola. We had music today from David Seste. Please also check out our blog at iowaenvironmentalfocus.org where we cover environmental research and news every day of the week. Or reach out to us on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Until next time, from the UI Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, I'm Jenna Ladd.